Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This episode is a special podcast about the stories to watch for 2021. There'll be warnings. If we continue to destroy nature, we destroy our future economy and we destroy our future society. There'll be questions. What about those who are going to be uprooted by this disruptive change? What are we going to do about that? But in 2021, there'll also be the chance to reset and to rebuild. We are entering the decisive decade now. We need to go through the portal, so to speak, into this new world. So it's now 2021, and many are hoping that the trials and tribulations of 2020 are finally over. But what happens now? What are the challenges to face, the questions to ask, the opportunities to seize? Every year, we at the World Resources Institute ask ourselves these questions and more, and knock our answers together in something we call Stories to Watch. WRI's president and CEO, Andrew Steer, has just done the first public presentation of these. It's something that you can find on our website, wri.org. I caught up with him shortly afterwards. First question, what exactly is Stories to Watch and why do it? Well, Stories to Watch is something that the World Resource Institute have been doing for about 16 years. Each December, we uh, gather some of our brightest young researchers and communicators, and then they scan all of our experts around the world. We have 1,300 experts around the world and say, what are the, what are the five to seven stories that we should pay a special attention to in the coming year? And that helps focus our attention, but then we also hope that it will also focus other people's attention as well. And so we do this each year, and then we use this to um, provoke sort of interesting discussions in different parts of the world. Uh, this year, of course, you can't help but be affected by what happened in 2020 when you look to what's happening in 2021. Uh, how difficult was it to actually free yourself of, of, of the awful things that have happened in 2020 so that you had a much clearer mind of what is going to happen in this year and going forwards from that? Well, normally uh, we have a lot of fun with this um, and uh, some of the stories are not as serious as others. I must admit, this year, um, it was hard to take a lighthearted approach to anything. I mean, we've had, you know, a simply dreadful year. And and on the day we presented <laughs> stories to watch, it was the day that for the first time in American history, a president of the United States was being impeached for the second time. And on a day when uh, well, over 100 million people have caught the COVID virus and over 2 million people have, have died. And that's just the official data. So this is um, simply a dreadful state of affairs. Um, and also, I mean, I'm speaking from Washington, D.C. And um, just, uh, you know, a few days ago, we had essentially an insurrection, an attempted coup um, in a country that likes to think of itself as the, the, the cradle of democracy. So these are pretty dark days. And of course, in the areas that we deal with, which relate to poverty reduction and, um, and the natural environment, um, 2020 was a terrible year. Um, maybe 100 million extra people were forced into poverty because of the coronavirus and the economic recession. And then on top of that, I mean, it was the co-equal hottest year on record. Um, we had a record pestilence in the Horn of Africa with locusts. We had the worst fires in history 
in the United States and Australia and Brazil. We had the worst hurricane season on record. So we are in um, in a period that is reminding us how vulnerable we are. And um, one of the important sort of things that we learned as we prepared stories to watch is that the pandemic actually <laughs> is potentially full of silver linings, a dreadful tragedy, but we've learned a lot. And we've learned, for example, that we are much more vulnerable than we thought. We really believed our governments could protect us. Well, they can't. We really believed we thought we were doing a reasonable job on social justice. Well, we weren't. It's exposed incredible racial and social injustice. We've learned we need more science than we had. We've learned that we need more of a sense of community. And there's been a great sort of intellectual outpouring in recent months as to whether or not the world could be entering sort of a new era. And that would be very exciting. So that's where you talk about a reset. Uh, it's not so much just a yearning to return to the, the days of 2019 when so many of these things hadn't yet happened. Uh, it's a reset. It's a chance to reimagine what's going to happen from this point onwards. Yes. The pandemics have, have often uh, caused society to rethink about where they are. Now, 100 years ago in the United States, when um, World War I had finished, and the pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu, was gradually coming to an end, the American citizens uh, voted for a president who came to power on the word normalcy. And he said, we need to go back to normal. We want to go back to the good old days. And his name was Warren Harding. And they voted for him because they thought that's what they wanted. But very quickly, it became clear that that was not what citizens wanted. They felt that they'd had several years stolen from them, and they started uh, operating at a much greater speed. And we may find something like that as well. We may find that there's a willingness to change and a demand for change that hasn't been here before. You know, and some political scientists and sociologists, you know, they talk about after World War II for 25 years, you had what you could call the era of the state. That's when governments were in charge. Governments owned the means of production. They dominated the commanding heights of the economy. And then in about 1980, you know, you had the Ronald Reagan, the Margaret Thatchers, you had China opening up, you had Europe uh, opening up, you had 130 countries reforming their policies to privatize, deregulate. So from 1980 to 2020, you had sort of the era of the market, which is very different from the era of the state. And so a number of historians and sociologists are asking, well, maybe now there's a different era coming. Could be better, could be worse. What would it be? Could it be the era of community or, or will, will it be the opposite? Will it be we'll, we'll revert into our sort of tribalism? Will it be more cooperation or less cooperation? So there's everything to play for right now. Now, in your presentation, one of the things that you talked about in the stories to watch was nature and uh, humanity's relationship with nature. Perhaps that's another thing that we've learned in 2020, that if you get so badly out of sync with nature, pretty dreadful things can happen. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Nicholas. That's, uh, that's exactly uh, what can happen. And indeed, you know, in, in, in some way, we don't want to overstate it, but the very virus itself was created by the wrong kind of human interaction with nature. But I think there are some 
strands now that are driving us to take nature more seriously. We now know that nature needs to be invested in. If we continue to destroy nature, we destroy our future economy and we destroy our future society. We also need nature in order to address climate change, quite frankly. Agriculture, food, forest loss is contributing 25% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But now we know it has to go not only to eliminate that, but actually, if we are going to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius, nature, that is the land, the agriculture, the forests, the waters, they actually need to absorb a huge amount of carbon that is already up there in the atmosphere and may need to absorb up to about 17 years of accumulated total global emissions. So that's a, a huge, if you like, sucking sound that needs to take place as carbon comes down to earth in the form of new trees and bushes and soils and crops and mangroves. The good news about that is not only does it help address climate change, but it is actually hugely beneficial economically. Invest in mangrove restoration. You help, you help the environment, but my goodness me, you help fishermen. You help flood protection. Speaking of, of, of good news coming out of 2020, quite a few things hold promise for the year ahead and beyond. Obviously, we have the, the inauguration of President Biden coming up very soon, but we also have more commitments about what's going to happen in the, in the future. Green growth is built into several of the COVID recovery plans. Does that give you cause for optimism? Yes, the coming year has actually embedded in it a lot of optimism. We go in at one level in the deepest gloom because more people are dying today than ever before of COVID. But on the other hand, we also have huge hope in the area in which we work. It's very encouraging. I mean, look at Europe, look at the Green Deal of Europe. Deeply impressive, the commitment um, not only to invest a lot of money to get people back to work and get the economy back on its feet, but to invest it in a way that we head towards tomorrow's economy and not yesterday's. You know, there's an expression here in the United States, if you play ice hockey, you should skate to where the puck will be, not where it is or was. And that's what, for example, Europe's trying to do its Green Deal. You know, we at the World Resources Institute are very keen to play a role in helping to get that kind of message out. And it's particularly important because the European uh, Union has also emphasized what's called the just transition. So they've rightly recognized that if we are going to address climate change and if we're going to address all the other SDGs we need to, we're going to have a pretty radically different economy and we're going to have some real disruptive change ahead of us. Now, society as a whole will be the huge beneficiary of this, but that doesn't mean that every element of society and every geography will be a beneficiary. And one of the things that the environmental movement has really failed to address in the past is the notion that whilst overall something is good to happen, it doesn't mean it's good for everybody in the short term. And so the, the so-called just transition is basically saying, what about those who are going to be uprooted by this um, disruptive change? What are we going to do about that? What alternative livelihoods, what alternative futures can make things even better? So, so what we're working on is, you know, how can this kind of messaging become the norm? And I mean, the good news is that the Biden-Harris administration coming in, they have inclinations exactly the same as this. So we're really hoping that there'll be a real commonality of purpose and spirit 
between the United States and the European Union. And then, I mean, how brilliant it would be is if you could sort of create a sort of a G3 in our space with China. I mean, obviously, there are going to be huge stresses with China, a lot of competitive issues relating to geopolitics and trade and so on. But maybe the issues of climate change and sustainability could be one of the areas that actually um, brings them together. How cool that would be. And if that were to happen, many, many others would follow. Looking beyond that to the rest of the world, uh, one thing that is certainly a worry for many, especially as the the vaccines against the COVID virus uh, roll out, is the question of equity and certain countries being not just worse uh, affected by what's happening and the economic slowdowns, but also finding it much more difficult to come out. And I suppose that that extends beyond countries to certain communities. Um, And obviously that fits in with the just transition bit that you've just spoken about. You're absolutely right. There is no better litmus test to determine how moral we are as a civilization than looking at the question of who gets the vaccine, when do they get it, and what do they pay for it. Most rich countries have purchased more vaccines than they will need, and very soon we will be seeing whether or not they are willing to make generous early commitments to countries that are suffering. As of today, much of the low-income world will not be vaccinated until 2023. That is a disgrace, given that we have managed to develop a vaccine in a record-breaking time. And we need to monitor very carefully whether or not this failure to support developing countries is due to the profit motive. And that would make it doubly immoral. Now, we're hoping that there will be real progress. Um, There is a program called COVAX, which is working very hard, led by the United Nations and WHO and Gavi, that really is committed to do it better. So when I say it would be a sign of immorality, we hope that that will not be the case, because for heaven's sake, I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to show that we are actually one world. And there is, truthfully, right now, the feeling in a number of developing countries, a large number of developing countries, that at the time when they need the help the most, they are being betrayed. They've been told for years that there really wasn't enough money available to address climate change or to help them with adaptation um, as they're already suffering from climate change. But then suddenly the virus comes along and suddenly $13 trillion, the biggest sum of money in the history of the world of public spending, suddenly within the space of six months magically appears and 95, 99% of that all spent on the rich countries itself. And so, so there's some pretty big questions being asked right now and uh, how wonderful it would be if trust could really be built and support given to developing countries. Next question is about a a much smaller part of the world economy. It's about public transport. I noticed this in the presentation. It was it was fascinating how you were talking about the disruption of transportation, how the 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 finances of so many public transportation organizations and institutions is basically being wrecked by what has happened in 2020. And you ended with that question of will public transport survive? Now, this is also an environment and a development question, isn't it? Yes. I mean, what essentially happened, obviously, is at the time of the pandemic, uh, nobody traveled. And so as a result of that, 
people weren't taking public transport because it was perceived to be dangerous. And indeed, people, to the extent they traveled, got back in their cars. And that was extremely unfortunate because it meant that revenues fell. So, for example, the European Union, I mean, $50 billion shortfall in public transport transit revenues. New York City alone, $12 billion. India has lost $7 billion. You know, more significantly in terms of human suffering in Africa, where there are thousands of small informal public transit companies, many or most of which are now bankrupt. And as a result, 9% of the African population has uh, re-entered poverty since the COVID started. And one of the most important reasons is that poor people could no longer travel to their place of work because that was not available. So, so this is an issue of significant social equity issues. It's also a very big issue relating to climate change, because what's happening is that the worry is that people are not going to trust public transport. They're going to get back in their cars. Now, there is a silver lining to all of this, and that is that a large number of cities, I mean, many hundred of cities now, have come to the conclusion that actually during the COVID, things were very quiet. And that meant that people were actually turning to their own two feet to move around and to bicycles and to scooters. And so there's been an absolute boom for these forms of transport. And cities all around the world have been putting in thousands of kilometers of extra cycle paths, you know, taking away part of the road and so on. And one of the things that we're working on um, with, with a, a large number of cities is don't go back to the old ways. Stick with this. That's very encouraging. And give the rest of the road to public transport. But uh, let's keep people out of their cars. We cannot, cannot say this too strongly. We cannot solve the problem of climate change if people simply will stay in their cars, even as we move to hopefully 100% electric vehicles by sometime in the 2030s and 40s. Uh, we're just going to end with the question that you ended to the panel of WRI experts during your presentation that we, we watched earlier on. And that is you asked them to finish the sentence in 2021. I hope we'll see dot, dot, dot. And you asked them to finish it. Well, what, what would you have put uh, at the end of that sentence yourself, Andrew? Oh, that's a good question. I, I hadn't thought of that. But I suppose it would be, I, I really do believe we may be at an inflection point. Um, I, I guess a tipping point is slightly more sort of binary than an inflection point, point, but I think we are at an inflection point. We are entering the decisive decade now. We need to go through the portal, so to speak, into this new world. So I guess I would hope to see in 2021 strong evidence that we are entering a new era. We continue to benefit from the market. Uh, we continue to strengthen the role of government, but it is communities that come into their own, communities that support citizens caringly in a way that makes us more resilient, more productive, and altogether happier. That was Andrew Steer with an upbeat ending to Stories to Watch 2021. You can find Andrew's presentation and an accompanying blog post on our website wri.org along with the rest of our work on everything from cities and climate to oceans, energy, finance, water, food, forests and much, much more. If you enjoyed this Big Ideas Into Action podcast, 
please subscribe. I hope you all have a healthy and agreeable 2021. I'm Nicholas Walton. Goodbye for now.